Khrushchev came to the United States, had a um, 10 day trip here and Eisenhower took him up to Camp David and tried to resolve the Berlin crisis. It didn't work. They didn't find a resolution. So granddad called up uh, my mother and said, get the kids cleaned up and over at the house and a half an hour I'm bringing Khrushchev to the farm. Huh. Okay, so this is where it gets weird, right? Um, suddenly we have a perfectly normal life one day and the next day we're being used as a prop in some Cold War negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think the reason was that, I think it was actually um, rather clever on Eisenhower's part. I call it uh, the grandchildren strategy which is to um, say without saying it, we are here to find a resolution to this because of them. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists, deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mangan, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. On the release of today's episode, we find ourselves in October of 2020, still deep in the COVID-19 pandemic and exactly one week away from the 2020 presidential election. So instead of piling on with our own opinions and speculation, we're going to head to the past for some lessons and perspective that might, just might, help us make better sense of the world around us. Lessons from someone I think many of us wouldn't mind having around today. A man who led the fight to liberate Europe from the darkness of Nazism. A man who spent decades patiently preparing and training for that role, never knowing if that role would ever come. A man whose deep footprint on history still shapes the world we live in today. A man who served through multiple heart attacks, strokes, and other illnesses a leader tested by pandemics of his own, from the 1918 Spanish flu to polio, a true citizen of the world who, as LBJ described, left, quote, America a better nation, stronger, safer, more conscious of its heritage, more certain of its destiny, because Ike was with us when America needed him, unquote. Well, today's guest knew Ike pretty well, although she never addressed him as General, Mr. President, or even Sir. She simply called him Grandpa. That is because Susan Eisenhower is one of Dwight Eisenhower's four grandchildren. She is a writer, policy strategist, and national security expert who leads the Washington, D.C. consulting firm, the Eisenhower Group. Her new book, How Ike Led, the principles behind Eisenhower's biggest decisions and her personal perspective growing up with her grandfather are the focus of today's episode. This one was a lot of fun and, you know, pretty relevant to what's going on today. I think you'll enjoy. And with that said, let's get started. Today, we are delighted to have Susan Eisenhower with us. Susan, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you today. Well, Colin uh, and Keith, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. Well, Susan, you've got a book about your, your grandfather. We're going to talk about that. And well, it's exact. It's Tuesday and next Tuesday is a big day. So, you know, if, if someone's listening to this years down the road, the, we're just before the 2020 presidential election here. So it's a, an interesting time to be talking about what we're going to be talking about today. But I thought a fun place to start. Let's go back to 1928. So your grandparents are packed in a Buick with two of their good friends, taking a little road trip through Europe, the kind of thing we used to be able to do before the pandemic. And <laughs> they're heading uh, through Belgium up into Germany. Tell us what, what they were doing there. Um, one, what Eisenhower was doing stationed in Europe at this point. And this is just a little over a decade before uh, the outbreak of World War II. 
it's just fascinating to me that he was he was there. But give us an idea what was happening here. Well, it's a it's an interesting story because I get actually had not fought in combat uh, during the First World War, but he played a pivotal role at Camp Colt in training uh, the tank corps for action uh, at the front in France. Uh, we did not have a tank corps up to that moment, so he, was he and George Patton were the revolutionaries in that exotic technology. Uh, but after the war, uh, General Pershing, who had been commander of US forces, during that war asked Eisenhower to go to France to write uh, a book um, called The American Battlefields of France. And Eisenhower literally walked every bit of the terrain of France during that time. And it's uh, extraordinary when you think back on how useful that must have been to him during World War II, to literally know where every intersection was in France and to have walked it himself. After completing that book, Ike and Mamie decided to have a uh, quote-unquote vacation, and they took um, uh, their dear friends, the, the Grubers, with them. Um, and Ike, uh, being a great writer, was the uh, group diarist. Um, so we do know where they stopped for lunch, uh, what their impressions of the countryside were, and uh, I've, I've often wanted tremendously to retrace those steps because many of the restaurants are still there. Or I hope they will be after this pandemic. Uh, in any case, I also found this diary fascinating because Ike was of 100% German background. And at one point, he says that Bill and I are entering the fatherland, um, you know, and he didn't mean fatherland in a Hitler-like way. It just means the country, his country of origin um, the Eisenhowers had come to the United States in 1741, uh, but still they were part of a community that uh, ate German food and um, certainly some of Ike's ancestors, I, I shouldn't say ancestors, I should say uh, uncles and grandparents um, spoke German. Uh, so it just seems so ironic to me that in a matter of a few short years, he would be tasked with um, beating the German enemy. It's it's just amazing. I mean, it's one of those moments you just pause during the book and just think how things change so much. And, and you know, what was going through his head, too? I mean, the you know, Nazi party hadn't even taken power yet, but we were just that, you know, not that far out of World War One. So there was a lot of concern that, you know, we didn't quite end that in a way that was going to not put us right back into it. Which we talked about he, earlier. He did, yeah, he did believe that a, another war was coming. Uh, but, you know, the wonderful thing about America is that he might have had uh, German ethnic roots, but it never occurred to him that he was anything other than a thousand percent American. Mm. And uh, actually, it was his father who uh, refused to speak German at home and insisted that uh, Ike's generation be English speakers only. So there are all kinds of interesting things that go on with that family with respect to that legacy. So Ike never learned to speak German, huh? No. How about that? No, resolutely. And he also, during the war, absolutely refused never to have a conversation with the German general. He was so, um, he was in a state of disbelief about what they had unleashed. And uh, he was very, very principled on that point. Okay. So what I said earlier, we're going to jump around. I don't want to miss that. There was a moment during the Second World War, and then we're going to take a step back to before, but he was invited to talk with, I think, a captured high-ranking German official. Um, he refused to do so. Tell us what was going on there. Well, he just didn't believe that there was anything to talk about. I mean, you know, they're not playing uh, 
some kind of game here. They're not uh, assessing chess moves. Uh, he had absolutely no interest in, in meeting anybody like that. And at the end, uh, he was so, um, he, he didn't even want to breathe the same oxygen they were breathing. Uh, he did not, uh, he gave clear instructions about what he wanted from uh, the uh, negotiations that brought about the unconditional surrender. But he didn't even want to be in the same room with those guys. Uh, the only thing he did do is to say after the unconditional surrender is signed, he had his deputy do that, he wanted to see um, the German delegation in his office. Uh, and in one very terse uh, exchange, uh, Supreme Allied Commander Eisenhower says to them, do you understand what you've signed? Uh, they said yes. He said, do you understand that uh, I'm holding you personally responsible for what you um, uh, signed? And there will be consequences if uh, you don't uh, enact this. They said they understood, and he dismissed them. That, that little conversation took less than a minute, but that's the only exposure he wanted to have to those people. This is probably not widely appreciated, but Eisenhower never actually served in, in frontline combat or at all, really, in the European theater during the First World War. Tell us a little bit about his early career. Let's, let's talk about West Point. I mean, was it always his ambition? to go into a professional military career? What was he thinking as a young man? Well, I, I would say not. Uh, his parents, back to this um, uh, German-American uh, family that was part of a deeply religious community that um, were conscientious objectors. Um, uh, my great-grandmother was very anti-war. It didn't matter. Uh, as a matter of fact, no Eisenhowers even fought in the Civil War. Uh, however, I did note in my book, which I think is a fun fact, um, that um, the Eisenhowers anyway wanted to express their views and named um, Ike's uncle uh, Abraham Lincoln Eisenhower. So we do have an Abraham Lincoln in our family. <laughs> <laughs> they took sides, yeah. Yeah, so Ike ends up at West Point largely because he, he wanted to have a free education. I mean, he, he needed to have a free education because his family couldn't afford to put him through college. And he had already stayed behind to put his older brother through college. Uh, so he applied first to Annapolis and was turned down because he was too old and managed to get into West Point. Um, and then I think what happens at West Point is critically important. Uh, he took um, his um, parents' belief in something larger than himself and merged that with the, uh, his oath um, to the, defend the Constitution of the United States at West Point and decided to make uh, defending the United States of America um, the commitment he would make with his life. So what happened during the First World War? I mean, in a way, he kind of missed his opportunity. You hate to say that when you think about what all happened during the First World War, but um, where was he serving? What was going on at that time? He was, he was serving at Camp Colt, and actually he was playing an extremely important role in that he was um, commanding the, um, the only tank unit, a training center, um, in the United States, and he was training these um, tank troops to go to uh, the front. Eisenhower was a big tank man, and his friend George Patton, the two of them, you know, made quite a team. They were well, well in advance of uh, Army doctrine on the use of tanks. Um, but no, he hadn't served in, in line combat, but neither had um, uh, uh, Omar Bradley, who became uh, a critically important during uh, the war too. You could argue in an in a interesting way that as Supreme Allied Commander, he really benefited from not being 
um, as engaged at the front during the First World War, and you might ask why. Uh, it's because the whole nature of warfare changed. And he didn't have set ideas that went back to uh, an experience that was now outdated. This is the fight he had within the army about the use of tanks. They thought tanks ought to be like a mobile storage unit. Ike said, no, what if, what if, what if you were to put big guns on them and speed up the engines so that they could be, um, you know, uh, tools of, of, of warfare itself? And, and he was able to think out of the box like that, perhaps in, in some measure, because he um, was coming at the, the issue fresh. And that wasn't well received, was it? Oh, well, no. I mean, at the point when he wrote uh, that piece about uh, tank warfare, uh, he was warned that if he continued writing revolutionary articles like that, <laughs> that uh, he might be court-martialed. So I'm not sure that stopped him. He and George Patton had a little group of people who were of the same view, and they hung out together. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. You can't imagine World War II without tanks. So that's so influential that, and so important that he sort of got this done. Well, he, and very early on. I mean, he right. writes this article about tanks uh, not long after graduation. And I think finally they decided, uh, let's give him a, a tank unit to command. Um, maybe that'll absorb some of his energy and, you know, give him a chance. Now he gets to the the camp there, and they didn't even have tanks. Right. Um, <laughs> so they, he had to train them how to shoot at moving targets um, by, uh, and, they, and they used trucks. Um, many people, when they go to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, don't realize that what is uh, well, better known as Pickett's Charge uh, was the territory um, that the Army had been assigned to use for tank training. Uh, going no into World War. No huh. kidding, I know. And uh, it's, it's rather interesting. Uh, Ike was all of 27, 28 years old um, and received a Distinguished Service Medal, not just for his um, leadership at Camp Colt, but also for his management of the Spanish flu pandemic. Right. You, you brought that up a little bit as we were discussing offline. And I don't think, I think that's a side of um, Eisenhower's career that most people don't know. Um, so important, certainly, with what we're going through now. Can you discuss a little bit like that? Where did he get his ideas? Was this just uh, just his orderly mind, or did he actually refer to people? How did he come up with a way of managing it? Well, there, there are a couple of uh, elements here. First, the, when he took over Camp Colt, there were 500 men under his command. Again, remember, he's 27, 28 years old. Um, by the uh, fall of 1918, he had 10,000 men under his command. Uh, and this is just on the outskirts of uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I think the locals were in a state of shock because they had uh, all of these rambunctious um, soldiers in their midst. And he had to take all kinds of measures about, um, you know, you might say um, town camp relations. But in September of 1918, uh, two men came into the camp from a, another unit and they had the Spanish flu. And in almost no time, because that particular pandemic moved very, very quickly and affected uh, young people in a very uh, dramatic way. Uh, and in no time at all, the camp was, in, you know, um, was seriously fighting this. Uh, first of all, he did have a very organized mind, but he also had uh, I think the right conviction about taking advice from scientists and the medical community. Um, and he made sure that he listened to them very carefully. They came up with the whole quarantining regime. 
that included and and by the way the army had no no uh no doctrine or rules for how to handle this pandemic so um this is one of the reasons he was um, given that recognition later is that he actually figured out how to manage this. I think they had something along the lines of about 137 deaths um, in those weeks, but um, it was uh, very, very dicey and he managed to meet his objectives and get his uh, tank corps off to, off to Europe in the middle of all of that. Um, and he did a lot to establish good working relationship with the town of Gettysburg. As a matter of fact, he talked a number of civilians into um, allowing um, the basements of the churches, for instance, to be used for quarantining purposes. Um, but later, the doctors that uh, Ike brought to prominence there went on to teach the army about best practices and pandemic management. Hmm. Well, you, I mean, do you remember what some of those practices were? I mean, I'm just kind of curious because there's so many things from the, the Spanish flu epidemic that or basics that we, you know, some of us are, are using today and some of us are not. Um, was it just the quarantining? Was it masks? Was it, um, you know, certain protocol for treating patients? I mean, it, maybe it's a little too esoteric a question, but. Well, no, it's just, it's a spectacular question. And here's the thing about writing a book. The lead time for writing books is so long. Uh, I mention it in passing in my book, but if I had had any idea that yeah. <laughs> uh, we were going to have a pandemic when I finished that book. Not only would have I have devoted a chapter to that, but also think about um, the backdrop of infectious disease in his lifetime. Um, so um, Ike and Mamie's uh, first son, Dowd Dwight, died at the age of three of scarlet fever. Um, and this was a shattering event for um, both my grandparents. Uh, but if you think also, even during the Eisenhower presidency, how many things he dealt with. I mean, the polio uh, epidemic was a very real thing. And uh, the uh, salt vaccine uh, is, um, is uh, certified, I guess that's the right word, in 1955. And I think it's very moving that Eisenhower not only praised the scientific community, said the federal government would stand right behind them. And by the way, there would be no cost to people who could not afford this vaccine and that it would be distributed equitably across the country. And that kind of leadership was critically important. Uh, and then, you know, there was the avian flu pandemic in um, uh, 56 to 58. So um, this was something I think that generation was really used to dealing with. Um, and some of it, I mean, all of it revolved around the scientific community being able to uh, do their work and being supported in that work. Uh, I will say that Ike had an amazing relationship with the scientific community. And I think that that kind of mutual respect um, gave everyone kind of an assurance that everyone was working as hard as they could to find a solution. Do you have a sense from uh, your research and from his writing and what you know about him personally, how involved was he or how much did he actually talk to the scientific community? Did he, did he want details or was a lot of what he did just, I trust you, stand back, do your work? Well, I think there are two things about this. Um, I said earlier that he had an organized mind. He also had um, a very healthy understanding of what he knew and what he didn't know. And if you are Supreme Allied Commander during World War II, first of all, technology played a huge role in that war. It was, it was a transformational period with the V1 and V2 rockets and 
Uh, Germany was already working on a nuclear weapon and you, you could not afford to be arrogant about what you knew or didn't know um, about technology. So he always admired scientists. And I think, um, you know, that uh, played a huge role in the fact that um, in 1957-58, he actually elevates where the scientific community is located within the federal bureaucracy. Um, and what's known today as the science advisor of the President of the United States, who sits in the White House, uh, is actually a function of Dwight Eisenhower's decision to move the scientists out of uh, some buried spot at defense mobilization and into the White House. He used to have uh, the scientific community in to confer with him all the time. As a matter of fact, if I may just add this, on his deathbed, uh, Dr. James Killian of MIT, who was the, uh, had been the president's science advisor during his administration, came in um, to say goodbye. And Ike looked at uh, Killian and he said, how are my scientists? And uh, Killian says, I ask after you, sir, all the time. And he said, I want you to know that of all the people I met in Washington, the scientific community always put their country first. How's that for um, one of the last things he said in his life? No kidding. So I think today we have to we have to go back and realize. I mean, I'm I'm grateful every day that um, you know that they're great technologists and mathematicians in the country because I certainly wouldn't be capable of doing any of that myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have to give them the leeway and we have to listen to them. There's no question about it. Yeah, not to mention think the way they think. I mean, there's, there's not, it's not always just science and non-science. It's the process of discovery and making a hypothesis and testing it and testing it again. And that seems to be lost. And by the way, finding some, uh, finding some satisfaction in the things you've eliminated, you know, in the um, non-scientific community, there is a general feeling that everything is right or wrong and there's winners and losers and all this sort of thing. What I've always admired about the scientific community is the process they go through. And for every alley they go down that has a dead end, um, you know, there's, there's not a sense of defeat about it at all. It's, um, oh, we've eliminated that option. Right. And uh, I think this is what makes um, being around that community so uplifting for me because that is the process of life. You know, learning from mistakes and, and, and actually regarding it as um, an opportunity to uh, try other options. And I think that's what he appreciated. I can tell you this whole winner and loser thing that we've got going on today, I wouldn't understand it at all. Hmm. Not at all. He believed in second and um, some cases third chances um, because he believed that, um, you know, this is way too narrow a way to be uh, assessing people on this, just simply um, the resort of people who want to slam each other rather than um, fully describing a human situation. Yeah, and I, I want to go deeper into that too, because a couple of weeks ago, you and I were talking on the phone about this and about McCarthy, and there's always been a lot of criticism lobbed at Ike about this. Um, but the way you describe it, and you're not the only one, a lot of historians have done this, you know, his approach to this was a little more unique. And let me stop right there because, you know, we'll get off, off track. And I want to I <laughs> cover a couple more things before we move on to the Second World War. But um, I think there's a lot of lessons there that we can explore for the current environment. 
Although God, even Ike would probably be shaking his head looking at oh, I, how I know. people get their I, information today. But. <laughs> well, first of all, the most important thing to know about uh, McCarthy and also some other um, controversial issues at the time is let's remember that Ike is a military man. He thinks about things um, in a uh, from a strategic perspective, and he's um, quite capable of stripping down an issue to its essence. The essence of McCarthy was that Senator McCarthy was a senator in a co-equal branch of government. Uh, and Eisenhower, no matter how much he might have complained about him publicly, had he chosen to do that, would not have had any power under the Constitution of the United States to reprimand Senator McCarthy. And by the way, Senator McCarthy was a Republican um, in, a, in a Congress that was um, under the leadership of the Republican Party. And Dwight Eisenhower was a member of the same party. So he had to figure out how to um, persuade the people in the leadership in Congress who supported Senator McCarthy that McCarthy had to be disciplined. Um, so you don't do that publicly. If you stand up and insult somebody that everybody else supports, then it only hardens that support. But I'll tell you that behind the scenes approach and the, what I called his policy of no personalities drove a lot of people absolutely crazy <laughs> because there's something very satisfying about getting up and ripping your opponent, except that uh, if it leads to counterproductive results, then actually what's called for is discipline uh, and a capacity to find another way to get the, the same job done. Where, where do you think he got that sense from? Because he did have a political background. It wasn't true that he had none. I mean, he had to pull together all the allies during World War II. That's no small thing. Um, it, I, I don't, you know, I mean, look at Truman, the way he handled it. You know, I think he would prefer just go to the Senate and punch him in the nose, you know, but, Bye. and he was not, you know, he didn't uh, spare any words with McCarthy, but Eisenhower did take a different approach. And it's, it's certainly a much more long-term view, but it's also, you never talked about this before that, you know, McCarthy and his team, they had a pretty good handle on the evolving media landscape at the time. They knew wow. how to kind of pull the levers and push the buttons. And there's other people that are a little ahead of the curve on that today, certainly more than I am. I mean, I can't even motivate myself to get on Twitter, but, <laughs> but, it, it, but I can't wreck, I can't just dismiss it completely because it's, it's part of the, the conversation. So where, where do you think that sense came from? Because this is not how everyone would have handled it. And again, he was getting criticism from his own party, from people around him. Oh, from family Constantly. members too. From, oh, yes, that's right. Yes, exactly. He had family members barking at him. He had um, people in his administration who said, you know, this guy just really requires a response. And Ike's attitude to that is, this is the junior senator from Wisconsin who wants to be elevated to the level of the presidency. And I'm not going to give the guy what he wants. Uh, he was fully of the belief, and you're absolutely right about the media landscape, um, that Senator McCarthy lived to be in the headlines on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And if one of his adversaries uh, wanted something that badly, he'd make sure he wouldn't give it to him. I mean, that is a rule of warfare. If your enemy wants you to make a mistake, um, you know, by, <clears throat> you know, going taking one route or another, um, then you've got, to, you've got to be ahead of the thinking. Um, so Ike said to his uh, press secretary, I'm not gonna get into the gutter with that guy. 
And what I worry about today is that the whole discourse in our country is such that we're all down in some gutter. We really need to elevate ourselves because first of all, the world is watching. So let me just add one more thing that might be of interest in the context of today's situation. I really believe the deep divisions like the ones we have today uh, were a national security issue. And this is another reason he didn't get into a full-on confrontation uh, with McCarthy because um, first of all, it wouldn't be productive. And secondly, um, the world is watching. So um, uh, Eisenhower believed that these deep divisions, the kind that we're experiencing right now are a national security issue. And he said they would be, these divisions are a welcome site for an alert enemy. Um, so next time we go around saying, isn't it terrible that we've got um, Iran now and we've known about Russia, China, all of these countries, you know, hacking into our systems and our, um, even our election technology. We've given them the roadmap for this. We've helped them understand where to go and what to do. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't have proper public discourse, but um, the vehemence of this is really um, a not productive and it, it's not good for us and it's not good for anything. Yeah. And, and you had pointed out, um, and I'll let you tell the story, but in addition to, although he was, you know, a Republican, uh, he really recognized the, that the primacy, not the primacy, but the equality of the, all the houses. And he, uh, he did things with the Supreme Court to try to make sure that it, it uh, represented the United States. Could you address that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting. Um, some scholars kind of criticize him for being too much of a constitutionalist, but let's remember that he makes his first oath to defend the Constitution of the United States when he's at West Point in his early 20s. Um, so this was something he took very seriously. As a matter of fact, uh, Keith, to your point, um, for six whole years, nobody knew whether he was a Democrat or a Republican uh, and was uh, actually lobbied by both parties to be the standard bearer uh, for them in the coming presidential sweepstakes. So, um, you know, that already makes him a little different. And I would say arguably the most nonpartisan president we've had of uh, the 20th century. Um, in any case, um, I think that uh, he took this constitution so seriously that he believed, first of all, that the Supreme Court needed to be ideologically balanced because it's an unelected co-equal branch of government and that if it wasn't ideologically balanced, then not all of the country uh, would have confidence in the court to, do, uh, to um, underscore um, legal matters as opposed to political matters. Um, so as a Republican, uh, once he became a Republican, um, he actually uh, confirmed um, conservatives, moderates, and Democrats. Um, uh, Justice Brennan was his appointment. Um, he turns out to be one of the longest sitting progressive candidates on the court. Uh, he also was proud of the fact that he had uh, uh, produced ideological balance in the whole federal bench by the time he left his presidency. Uh, but also he understood fully well that Congress is a co-equal branch of government. And if you want to get anything passed or done, and I, after all, was a man of action, um, that's what his role was during World War II, then you, you have to build relationships. And uh, once a week, um, uh, Democratic Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson and 
um, uh, the leader in the House of Representatives, Sam Rayburn, uh, would come to the White House and they'd drink scotch and shoot the breeze and, you know, get business done. So this this gives Eisenhower an 80 percent. So good to see that that still happens today, too. I know, exactly. But the amazing thing is, is that 80 percent of his legislation, legislative agenda was passed um, with um, the opposite party in Congress um, because they worked on these relationships. It's very, very hard to say ugly things about somebody else you know well. And um, so where did he get all this? I think I think he practiced exactly the same policies he had during the war. Very interesting, because we thought about that a little bit here, Keith and I, um, I think maybe a year or two ago, we had a guest, uh, Dr. Alok Patel. So he's a pediatrician at Columbia. Um, and he's very much in the, into you know, the, the world of social media. So he, he, he's the kind of guy who, even though he's a pediatrician, he has no tr- trouble going on there and going head to head with people who are anti-vaxxers or putting out other information that's, that's contrary to you know, established medical practices. And, and he described why he says, you know, I've got to go where they are, you know, and I have no problem doing that. I'll, I'll go toe to toe with them. I know, I know the data, I know the science. Um, and now he actually, uh, he actually is hosting the PBS Nova podcast series. It's actually pretty good. I've, I've tried a couple episodes. So he's trying to take a different track now and be a little more entertaining, but also still teach science. And I don't know what the right answer is today, because today, everybody like McCarthy gets a, a megaphone and we, we all have them. And we're all yelling at each other. And there's at least at that time, even if McCarthy's staff was setting up devised materials like interviews with his staff and video clips and just feeding this out to everybody, it still had to go through maybe three major networks, major newspapers in every city. There's some curation to this, but today it's, it's a little different. And I don't know. I don't know whether going head to head with people just empowers them even more or if ignoring them for too long allows them to establish a beachhead, so to speak. And then next thing you know, they're, they're elected to office. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a very tough question, but it, it's given me a lot to think about reading about what, how Eisenhower approached this you know, really not that long ago in the large scheme of things. Well, actually, McCarthy, uh, you you made a point earlier that I didn't follow up on properly. Uh, yes, McCarthy was brilliant at understanding the new media technology, and that new media technology was called television. Uh, the interesting thing about McCarthy and television is that it both brought him to power, and it was a uh, medium that ended his power. Um, and so uh, that was uh, because ultimately this whole story led to McCarthy taking on the United States Army and behind the scenes Eisenhower made sure that the uh, hearings where the Senate of the United States was now had McCarthy answering questions, that it was televised um, and uh, uh, took, um, was of the belief that McCarthy would wilt under the lights, which is exactly what happened. And then he started making his usual crazy accusations, but this time everybody could see it for themselves instead of uh, through this curated process. Um, I think part of the uh, reason this um, universal platform today, uh, everybody's now got basically access to television. I mean, uh, we could be, we could declare ourselves a television company here, uh, Colin, and before you know it, um, you know, we could be beaming our uh, opinions and everything else to the world. The, the problem is, is that a lot of the people who are listening to what we have to say don't trust 
the so-called elite. Um, and there has been a deterioration of certain sectors of the American public's relationship um, with, with experts. Um, it used to be, because I've spent uh, most of my career in foreign policy, it used to be that um, experts like myself were invited all the time to come on television and offer uh, what we had studied carefully. Um, and now it's just one journalist interviewing another, uh, mostly from hearsay. So uh, the expert community has really been sidelined, I think, in a rather alarming way. That, that's one thing I'm a little more hopeful about. I mean, obviously, you can see what we do here. All we do is talk to experts. And, um, you know, granted, we're, you know, we'd probably be a little more popular if we had more celebrities on. And <laughs> although we just had Cal Fussman, who's interviewed every major actor and, you know, person in the world, you know, last week. So we do that, too. But um, I think it's Hedrick Smith, the power game that came back out in the 80s. I mean, he talked a lot about the power of the Sunday morning talk shows. That used to be a real thing, you know, right. where it wasn't just pundits who would go on, you know, and talk to David Brinkley. It was policymakers. And sometimes they would kind of beta test ideas that they wanted to put out the next week, kind of gauge the response. But there were real discussions that happened. And I think, and I'm hopeful that in the world of podcasts here, even though it's, a, it's much more disaggregated and spread out, so you have different subsets and interests all over the place, that there's not a lot of time limit to this. We can have long-form conversations and people can take it with them anywhere they are. So I'm hoping what used to happen in the, in the main, you know, the more mainstream media is still here. It's just in a different format. Well, I'm very, I'm very encouraged about podcasts for all the reasons you mentioned. I, I really am very encouraged by that. And what we have to do in our country is to find a way to uh, convince others that they uh, need an open mind um, and, and listen to more than just um, the people who occupy their echo chamber. Uh, I think part of it has been um, a real opportunity lost. When you think of the amount of common ground in this country, um, and nobody is really going out to um, bring all of those people um, into an idea, we're still talking about in the public space socialism and communism. Are we kidding? I was on the barricades in Moscow when the whole thing collapsed. And that was, sports fans, 30 years ago. Okay, it'll be 30 years ago next year. This is a long time. There is not a Russian I know uh, who would ever want to go back to the communist era. As a matter of fact, their biggest problem over there is that uh, they don't have any limits to their capitalism. Um, and so, uh, you know, we are talking about uh, a boogeyman that has disappeared from the scene a long time ago. Look at China. It's allegedly a communist party. I know. So we're not having the right conversation. We need to be having a conversation around problem solving. Um, uh, how many people who live in the inner city who, you know, are living below the poverty line and other things suffer from the same thing? Um, that much of the farming community suffers from. Uh, inadequate health care, uh, no access to bandwidth, all of those things that really should be um, uh, available to everybody in this country if we're not going to balkanize um, and uh, end up um, in a much more confrontational that we're all, uh, uh, situation than we are already in. Well, you nailed it. I mean, that, that is the risk of this disaggregation or balkanization of media that we end up getting into the silos and we, we don't hear one contrary, you know, thoughts 
but also we just don't hear what else is happening in the world. And I think that's a big risk of this. I don't know what the solution is to that one. Um, I mean, I know, you know, how I like to consume things and I find, I find it interesting when I didn't know something and I'm happy when I find out one of my positions was incorrect because I don't want to hold positions that aren't well-founded, but Another reason why I'm delighted to be on this program. This is great. But you know what's really at the heart of it all? And I've seen it now. I've, I've lived in two societies now where the wheels came off the bus completely. One was in Britain in the 1970s. They had a three-day work week, um, a run on the currency. Uh, the economy uh, went into an absolute nosedive, plus the IRA bombing. So that was an experience. I was there for seven years. And then I was in... Uh, you know, as, a, as an analyst and a writer for uh, newspapers, I was in um, Moscow when everything uh, collapsed. And I can tell you at the heart of where the violence and everything else comes in is fear. It's as, uh, to quote Dwight Eisenhower, it's fear in the hearts of men. And, and I've got to tell you that uh, the key to great leadership is to project optimism, though tethered to the reality. So it's not optimism that is uh, disconnected from the reality everybody else lives. It's, uh, it's optimism that revolves around we can do this. It's that kind of optimism. And it does not help uh, that we're not hearing more about that. Uh, because everybody who's living in diminished circumstances, including, you know, failure, I think the bandwidth um, the divisions of who has bandwidth and who doesn't is an extremely serious issue in this country. Um, and you don't want a situation where, um, you know, all we're doing is describing the problem. Uh, it's going to need everybody, including the people who are deprived of um, this to uh, help us understand how we can make a difference for them too. All boats have to rise. And Ike believed in what he called the middle way. And that's the territory, he believed, uh, where um, uh, people could come and compose their differences. Uh, eight, eight, uh, two terms called the middle way. Wow. And as he pointed out, it's, it takes more courage to be in the middle than it does um, uh, being out just uh, screaming uh, bumper sticker uh, phrases and the rest of it. Uh, it's easy to have a group around you who agrees with everything. It's a lot harder to try and bring people who don't agree with you into the center with you. Yeah. So um, I would have thought that uh, the pandemic would have been a common ground. And, and we don't have to get into the fact that clearly it isn't. It was politicized almost from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Eisenhower addressed his own pandemics and probably the biggest scourge and and people don't unfortunately we've lost sight of how big a scourge polio was um but he you know the the um the vaccines and all that work was not intensely popular people were very much afraid of what salk was doing afraid of the injections um what did ike do to get uh people to understand that this was important what kind of work did he do to get the nation to accept this vaccine? Well, you know, first of all, um, uh, the American people really trusted Dwight Eisenhower. And I I know it's really hard to convey what that was all about, um, except to say that uh, 16 million people during World War II served in uniform and uh, the lion's share of those troops were in Europe or they were backup troops uh, to support the Europe first strategy. 
um, the, um, the Far East was um, an enormously uh, brutal, difficult war. So uh, it takes nothing away from that, except that, you know, he was a victorious general and he was a general known to be interested in the troops, to uh, be a man who didn't like war. I mean, he had this relationship with the American people. So when he supported like the Salk vaccine, um, it made a very big difference. And I, I can't remember which of these vaccines my siblings and I, um, as, as I understood it, uh, were the first to receive it. Um, so in other words, um, he always believed in leadership by putting your, uh, you know, your actions where your words are. Um, and so uh, I think that's a, a very important piece of it. Um, I mean, it's, I, I also think that um, people had a different attitude uh, in general about um, illness. There was so much of it. I um, still, as a family, we still mourn uh, the death of Ike and Mamie's first child, uh, a little boy named uh, Dowd Dwight, who died at the age of three of scarlet fever. Um, think of all of those communicable diseases that finally were eradicated. I, I just think that the record is too good uh, to wonder about whether this is a good idea or not. Yeah, my oldest daughter's three right now. I mean, I can't imagine losing her. I mean, you know, I, I can't imagine life before she came into our life. You know, uh, that must have been devastating for them. Uh, devastating. Uh, and the other thing that's that's worth noting here, he said it was he said it was the worst thing that happened in his life, and I I can well imagine that. But the story behind it is so completely tragic because um, my uh, grandmother had a rheumatic heart, and she had was on the verge of getting pneumonia when this little boy got ill. It was just before Christmas. As a matter of fact, when they took the little boy to the infirmary, um, the bicycle they had assembled for him was under the tree. Um, and he died over the Christmas season. Uh, Ike was, uh, the kid had been, was in quarantine for most of the time, but Ike finally took the risk and went in and held the little boy in his arms when he died. My grandmother was forbidden to go to the hospital because of her uh, respiratory problem. So you can imagine a mother who can't say goodbye to her little boy. That's tough stuff. And um, so imagine now the, what it feels like to lose a child and then be responsible for sending people during the war to their deaths, okay? He not only looked those troops in the eyes because he didn't think of it as a life and death thing as much as it was a terrible hard job to do. And he went out and uh, but he always went out to talk to the troops with a, with a soft touch about home. And I can't tell you how many times in his memoirs and his diaries and even on his last trip to Normandy before, um, you know, before, well, he died a number of years after that, but um, for D-Day plus 20 years, he sits at those graves and talks about the parents who will never have grandchildren. You know, he, he was never a grandfather with that little boy who died. So it was this kind of uh, emotional connection with them. And I think that got conveyed to the American people. Um, so when he took the risks over vaccines and other things, they knew that this wasn't a cavalier. It wasn't a political decision. It wasn't a cavalier thing at all, uh, that this family had already suffered from uh, having losses due to communicable diseases. I want to touch on this one because we're in the middle of the pandemic right now. A lot of people are on the sidelines, so to speak, right? You know, some have been furloughed. If you're working for the airlines right now, you know, for example, 
But even even the people we don't think of as being on the sidelines, there's a lot of doctors and nurses who aren't very busy right now. Um, there's patients who aren't going to see collective care at the moment, and people have a lot of time on their hands. There's an opportunity to this, but it, it, I see it kind of a parallel. So I'm, I'm going to read a quote here from, this is former U.S. Ambassador Lawrence Taylor, and he remarked to you, quote, Eisenhower prepared himself for leadership, even though he didn't know if his time would ever come, unquote. And there was this long, long period of time from really the beginning of his military career to the outbreak of World War II, where he really didn't know if his time would come. But he seemed to always be preparing himself and bettering himself. And your, your grandparents traveled all over. I mean, they really didn't have roots, something else I want to talk about too. Um, well, not roots, but just not, not a permanent home. One, tell us about what he was doing during this downtime. And, and you know, resilience is really the word here. I mean, he just he just kept going and maybe you know, give us an idea. Were there some tough moments for them where he thought about, I- I'm done with the military career. You know, I, I there's other things I can do. Um, my family's had enough of this. Uh, maybe, you know, there must've been those tough moments. Give, give us a sense of what was going on here. Cause it, I think that, that the same feeling can be had in a lot of people today, you know, looking back years from now, I think many are going to look back and say, God, I should have been doing this, this, and this. I had that time. I was so I was so nervous. I didn't. I, there was so much uncertainty. I, I couldn't even focus. Oh, I I think it's a wonderful question. I'm so happy that you've asked this because I'll tell you one thing that really inspired me about the Camp Colt experience before the Spanish flu influenza comes into the camp. Remember, in fall of 2018, he gets there to take up this command, and there are no tanks, uh, and all they've got are trucks. But they're only like two trucks, and the size of his Um, of his unit is getting larger by the day. So they're all standing around kind of doing not so much during the day, or that was the danger. And uh, they had uh, some disciplinary problems because some of these guys went into town and uh, Ike had to issue some orders to the town that you're not to open the bars to them, et cetera, et cetera. But he decides while they're waiting for more trucks to come before the tanks finally come, that he's going to start a whole set of courses around um, skill training that would be useful if you're a tanker, but would all, a tank man, but, but also be useful if you decide to go into something else. So he, he started courses for these uh, uh, young soldiers in Morse code and other new technologies. It would be like going to today, um, being in the medical profession, but feeling like you don't have many skills uh, on the uh, internet or you know, all of the technology to be taking technology courses or finance courses or something like that. Um, So he used that time to um, help everybody who was in delay and waiting uh, to gain new skills that would be useful no matter what. Um, But you know, there there were challenges. Uh, One other thing I uh, like about the story of Camp Colt is that he was told by those who were at the front, his old classmates said, you know, this is a secondary position, all right? And then um, later in writing the American Battlefields of France, everybody said, this is a secondary position. We're back in Washington schmoozing with the big guys. Okay, well, it turns out the tanks and terrain were among the two most important factors during World War II. And who knew about that? The guy who was supposedly biding his time. Uh, but he put himself into those 
uh, to assignments and he put his best self into it because he was really of the belief that you never know when something's going to come in handy. Now, with respect to finally running out of um, energy on the waiting front, I think he did believe that a, a war was coming. But in, during the Great Depression, the army was not paid on a number of occasions. And he was a great writer. Um, and I did notice in uh, his diaries that he was offered a job um, at a significantly, for significantly more money to write for a newspaper. It said WP. I, I can't tell you whether the Washington Post um, was actually called the Washington Post in those days. I should know that. But in any case, he turned down that job. Secondarily, in the Philippines, when he was assigned there, again, um, in a job that didn't look like it was going much of anywhere, uh, he was um, offered a lot of money to uh, stay behind in the Philippines and help with a um, resettlement program, bringing uh, Jews out of Europe. Uh, to resettle in the Philippines because the United States would not um, fill the quota on Jews who could come to the United States. And Ike was a great believer in this project. He actually advocated for it with the president of the Philippines, but again, uh, decided um, that he had prepared himself and if the time did come, uh, he would be ready to serve. Uh, so he did have offers, as I say, along the way, but there was something in him that, um, uh, continue to remind him that he made an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and, and, and he would stay with it. Well, fortunately for all of us in the world we live in today, <laughs> he kept at it. <laughs> well, imagine being in your 50s, waiting until your 50s for your time to come. And that, that's it, exactly uh, right. I mean, that's how old he was. I mean, that's how old he was. Pushing retirement age. I mean, that's just extraordinary. I mean, talk about resilience. Yeah. All right, Susan, um, let's talk about you a little bit here. Growing up as a grandchild, you were, well, when I think about my grandparents, um, my, both my grandfathers were World War II veterans. Your grandfather was a World War II veteran. That's kind of where the comparison stopped. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> yours was both of them. Both <laughs> of my oh, yes, yes. That's right. Exactly. So um, um, I didn't get a chance to know my one grandfather at all. He suffered a heart attack pretty early on, and he was in a VA hospital mm. the rest of his life. Um, it's my mom's side, but my dad's, I did get to know him, but the memories I have of him are, they're special, but they're, sometimes it's just the small things like him taking me to school one day or us walking and him pointing out birds and trees that I learned later he used to make all those up just to impress us. But, you know, <laughs> I, but I never, you know, I didn't get, it's, uh, unfortunately, many of us don't get to know our grandparents as adults. My, and his wife, my grandmother, she just died about a year ago, finally. So she, she made it a pretty long time and got to meet, you know, my kids, but um, you got a lot of time to spend with them. You guys lived in Gettysburg, close to the, the family farm, I believe. And, and he was around through basically the entirety of your childhood. Give us a sense of what it was like growing up in this environment. You also had Secret Service protection, right? Right. Well, I was strange might be a, a word. To, I, I've got to say that there are a couple of things that happened which really were extremely helpful because this man had his feet planted firmly on the ground. If you're a military man and um, you're used to uh, wielding great power and authority, um, you know, that comes second nature in a way. I think it was his secretary who once commented that it was easier for Eisenhower to make a major decision like sending troops to Lebanon than it was to decide whether or not uh, he had to wear a black dinner jacket that evening or a white one. And um, that's not to uh, mean that his decision about sending troops to Lebanon, by the way, no, no military casualties at all on the, Amer yeah, um, 
that was a big decision, but he was used to making really big decisions. It's just that he didn't care about what color his dinner jacket was. And then you can be, you know, caught up in a state of total ambivalence, right? <laughs> um, but no, but he was, he was used to this. So he actually had a way of thinking through really tough problems. Um, I wouldn't call it a metric, but he, he became extremely adept at stripping down problems and getting to the essence of what the real issue is. And, and using a, a lifelong methodology like that that came into really sharp relief during World War II, it, it made it possible for him to actually put that aside in the evenings if there wasn't a standing crisis and to be a very normal um, family member. Now, it is also true that in the latter half of his presidency, we lived in the Washington DC area, so we saw him quite a lot uh, as president. So I would say that what, what emerged from this um, was a kind of compartmentalization skill on my part, which was to compartmentalize his public life from um, our family relationship with him, which I think was very good. But there were times when that intervened and it was always like totally strange. And there are days now and um, when I wake up and say, wow, did we really do that? That's pretty crazy. So I'll give you one quick example on this. In 1959, uh, the Soviet Union threatened the United States um, with what could have turned out to be a nuclear confrontation over the future of Berlin. I mean, Berlin, as we know, uh, through a number of administrations had been really a difficult problem to solve. So Khrushchev came to the United States, had a 10-day um, trip here, and Eisenhower took him up to Camp David and tried to resolve the Berlin crisis. It didn't work. They didn't find a resolution. So granddad called up uh, my mother and said, get the kids cleaned up and over at the house and in a half an hour I'm bringing Khrushchev to the farm. Huh. Okay, so this is where it gets weird, right? Um, suddenly we have a perfectly normal life one day and the next day we're being used as a prop in some Cold War negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think the reason was that, I think it was actually um, rather clever on Eisenhower's part. I call it uh, the grandchildren strategy which is to um, say without saying it, we are here to find a resolution to this because of them. I, I heard in the course of that conversation, it made a very big impression on me. I heard the word grandchild used. Nikita Khrushchev spoke about his own grandchildren, you know, as, as the introductions went on, right? And so um, actually the Berlin ultimatum uh, when Khrushchev got back was not dropped, but the uh, the date sure was taken off it, and it sort of faded away for a number of, of other years. But that kind of bringing somebody into your personal life seemed to have helped. So all I can say is strange. The only, um, and just to wrap this up here, um, my father did uh, always tell us his kids, though, and this is where I have my parents and grandparents to thank so much. Don't ever think you should start wearing the boss's stars, okay? This is admonition like <laughs> this guy, what's going on with him and his success has nothing to do with you, so you better get yourself organized and get on with it. And thank you, mom and dad. When did you realize that your grandfather was that Dwight Eisenhower? When did, when did it dawn on you that, that a, he was president, and just how big and important uh, figure he was in history. Well, you know, um, it, it sort of happened slowly, but my first political memory was, I think, of the 1957 
uh, inauguration. And when I say this is a political memory as opposed to a family memory, uh, memory um, the uh, January 20th fell on a Sunday and then the inauguration was on a Monday. So of course, we're not gonna have no president of the United States for 24 hours. So there was a ceremony at the White House uh, to swear Eisenhower in as the, um, you know, as the president for his second term. And I remember that very well um, because there were all these people there and we were in the East Room. And, and so that was the dawning, of course. The Secret Service, I knew that not everybody had Secret Service. The Khrushchev visit was, you know, a big hello moment because Khrushchev was in the country for about a, a week or so before he met up with uh, Eisenhower for a second time on that trip. And uh, my parents were terrified that we were going to run around with our classmates and, you know, talk about how exciting it was to meet Khrushchev. And there were uh, reporters who were sort of camping out at the bottom of our driveway. So, you know, that was, that made an impression. I did, I was fortunate to meet Winston Churchill and Charles de Gaulle, uh, in de Gaulle's case twice. Um, and um, so, and I learned how to curtsy when the Queen of England came to the United States. But, you know, that was so episodic. And we heard our father's voice about, you know, that's your grandfather, that uh, I, I've never thought that his accomplishments conferred any entitlement on me whatsoever. And I'm really shocked at the way we treat first families, even after they've left as some kind of royalty. I'm totally against it. I just want to make that clear to everybody. This is, what's a first daughter? It's a nothing. It's a nothing. I mean, uh, there's one guy and one guy only, as far as I'm concerned. And um, I, while I'm being uh, open about all this, I, I would be happy to start a campaign, um, you know, that sort of outlaws family dynasties. I think it's a big mistake. And I think it undermines our confidence um, in, um, you know, this, this country's capacity to produce people uh, who can take that job next. Um, you know, we're not Argentina and we're, we're not India. We, we don't need to have um, families uh, hovering and continuing to think about, um, you know, their next shot at the presidency. Well, his lessons clearly worked. I mean, your dad, for example, um, and I was watching a, an old PBS uh, American Experience uh, documentary the other night from the 90s. And what a, what a striking resemblance your dad had. To this. <laughs> wow, amazing. Um, and I remember seeing him over the years in documentaries, but your dad didn't want any preferential treatment. He served in the military himself. He also became a military historian and he was in Korea. This is something I didn't know. Um, you know, your grandfather was very concerned about him being captured while he was over there. That would have been very problematic, especially when he took over as president after Truman was finished. Um, what was the arrangement the two of them made? I think this really, this is pretty striking to me. It is, it is striking, and I think civilians would have a hard time understanding this, but um, this is all revolves around uh, duty and respect for the, for the job you have. My father uh, was in combat in Korea, and after Ike's inauguration, uh, they sat down to talk about um, you know, what my father's future plans were, um, and uh, my father said he wanted to go back to Korea uh, and rejoin his unit, and um, now his father, the President of the United States Commander-in-Chief uh, of the Armed Forces, said, well, I'm only um, going to let you go back under one set of conditions. If you decide you want to go, um, you need to take a sidearm with you. You need to keep it with you at all times. And you have to promise me that you will never be taken hostage. 
um, parentheses, even if that means you have to take your own life. Um, and so I, my father didn't hesitate. He says, I want to go back to my unit. Um, and in my father's retelling of all of that, it seemed perfectly natural to him because he was a military officer. Um, but he did, I think, later feel that, um, that the consideration for um, the president's um, capacity to exercise all options is more important um, than anything else. And, you know, he stayed with that uh, for his life. But imagine that. I mean, three, of, uh, three out of four of the next generation of Eisenhowers were already born. And mercifully, my father got through the Korean War without having to, you know, make good on his agreement with his father. But that's what, that's what uh, tough-minded military men, uh, that's a typical, I, I'm not going to say it's a typical conversation. But, um, and then I will tell you one other funny story about this. My father was great. No, he never wanted special treatment. So um, after the Eisenhower Farm in Gettysburg became um, a house museum as part of the National Park Service, you had uh, to get there by um, getting on a shuttle bus. And one day, um, my father arrives at the House Museum, the Eisenhower Farm, and he gets off the shuttle bus. And the park rangers are horrified that my father was on a shuttle bus uh, from the Gettysburg Foundation office to the farm. And he said, you know, you could have driven right onto the property. And he said, well, no, the rules are that you take a shuttle bus. <laughs> I don't know. There's something wonderful about that. He was a great guy. <laughs> I bet he was. Well, Susan, we're getting towards the end here, and we haven't even talked about Eisenhower's health at all. And this is a medical podcast, after all. So can't forget that. Um, there's actually quite a bit there. Um, your grandfather, um, he, he was tough on himself, too. He was a smoker. Um, I don't think he was doing a lot of Pilates when he was preparing for the D-Day invasion. I think uh, he was, he, and he had some heart problems among other complications. I was amazed, and I was telling you this earlier before we started re recording, when you go to PubMed and just put in Eisenhower, there's quite a bit in the medical literature about him. Even one talking about the billion dollar heart attack because one of the heart attacks he had when he was president, the stock market dropped that much. That's how much market capitalization evaporated uh, as a result of the news. Give us just a, a, you know, just a broad overview of his health history and then take us to the presidency here and help us understand, especially towards the end of the first term. He was, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether one, he was going to run again, but also whether he should. Right. Well, so um, I wrote another book 25 years ago in between, you know, my career in foreign policy. And I thought it was going to be my only book on the Eisenhowers. It's called um, Mrs. Ike. Um, and it's about um, my grandma. Actually, it's a book about my grandparents' relationship. So uh, this particular set of observations comes from that book. Um, I, I read in family letters and other things that he developed an intestinal, some kind of an intestinal bug when he was either um, in the Panama Canal Zone where they lived uh, during his army career uh, or the Philippines, because he kept having this, maybe it emanated in, in um, uh, Panama. So he always had a digestive problem he sort of dealt with. Uh, as far as the uh, heart problems are concerned, um, he had, um, I think he finally died of um, a form of AFib um, because his heart uh, just couldn't, um, you know, wasn't functioning properly at all. But he did have a number of heart attacks. And it's true, during the war, he smoked a lot of cigarettes. 
I would have been one of those people, however, to say, um, wait to give it up until the war's over, okay? <laughs> giving up smoking is too hard to do when you're in the middle of a big fight. But he um, eventually gave it up cold turkey uh, in the uh, early, um, I'd say a couple of years after the war. Um, but I think at the heart of, uh, well, pardon the pun, but I think at the essence of the situation was he was a highly disciplined person and understood that in order to get the results he needed, that is building relationships with people, rising above a lot of pettiness, uh, getting used to managing what it's like to be under attack, uh, that he internalized a lot. And uh, I'm sure his frustration level, I certainly know his blood pressure uh, was an issue. Um, he took up painting, he played golf, you know, uh, to uh, work off this energy and uh, recenter himself as far as painting was concerned. And he wrote uh, a pretty fiery diary uh, in many cases. But this was a lifelong challenge because he had a passionate personality anyway. Um, so he had a heart attack in, in 1955. I'll tell your viewers something that's really interesting. Almost all works of scholarship say he was frustrated because he was interrupted on the golf course like two or three times in the course of a day. No, I'll tell you what it was. That day he had his heart attack was the day their deceased son was born. And every September 24th, um, even during the war, I mean, this was the topic of family conversation. And he was on the golf course that day and yes, he got interrupted, but yes, it was the day that his son was born. And he and my grandmother that evening, no doubt, were talking about it. And so the combination of all of that. Then he had a doctor who did not, um, you know, call the medical people right away. Um, and um, that whole night, uh, I think my grand, it's known, my grandmother saved his life. Um, they were staying with her parent or her mother, her widowed mother, and they were in um, single beds. Uh, in the guest room, and she got into bed with him and warmed up his body. Um, and uh, of course, they called the doctor. He said, you know, the equivalent of, um, you know, give me a call in the morning. I think he gave him a little medication, nothing much. Didn't get him into the hospital right away. So, wow, that was that heart attack. And, and then later, just back to the intestinal problem, he had an ileitis um, uh, flare up that the doctors apparently uh, knew might be coming, but they didn't share that with the president, which is a scandal. Um, in any case, he had uh, emergency surgery um, in his uh, second term, and then he had an extremely mild stroke. When, when I say extremely mild, it only affected his speech for like one or two days, and he managed to give his State of the Union address only months later um, in a word-perfect fashion. So. Um, but all of this culminated in a, a belief that his uh, health really wasn't good. And I think um, certainly the stress played a big role. How would you describe yeah. his relationship with the White House physicians and uh, medical staff? Oh, he had, um, and as a matter of fact, a lot of scholarship is based on um, uh, Howard Snyder's diaries. And uh, I, I wouldn't even bother to look at him, frankly, myself. I knew too much about that relationship. Um, you know how people get white coat syndrome? Um, Dwight Eisenhower had Howard Snyder syndrome because Snyder, Snyder was a fusser and a clucker. And I'll tell you, if there was anything my grandfather didn't like, it was people kind of like um, hovering and, you know, patting your hand and all this kind of thing. And I, I think there was too much of that going on with Snyder. Snyder also uh, was older than the president. And 
uh, Ike already was not that young during his presidency. So um, Snyder uh, was not in terribly good health himself. And I just think that there are a lot of corners cut. Uh, I once went to Fitzsimmons Army Hospital where um, Ike recovered after his heart attack. And uh, I, I think this is the final thing I'd say on this is that they really didn't know much about this by comparison. Uh, they had a blood pressure monitor that's still there, but the doctors who know the history of that say that there really wasn't much they could uh, do for him. Right. Uh, I know he took nitroglycerin in his uh, later years. I know that because I saw uh, that happen on a number of occasions. Um, but the whole thing was keeping Ike's temper kind of uh, in check and, and not internalized too much. So, um, you know, he managed to get through his two terms and made three round the world trips that, as my grandmother said, would have killed a horse. Um, so he didn't stay on after the point that he had, or he committed himself to leaving the presidency if he didn't think he could continue to execute his duties. But he had, he had confidence that he could yeah. uh, because he tested himself constantly. Yeah, you talked, that was the age of the cardiac cripple. We had nothing to treat people with massive heart attacks with. So in a uh, testimony to his fortitude and also the luck of the country that it didn't turn, it, take that turn. But it brings up an issue, and we've seen it already in, in this current presidency and many presidencies about the, you know, the, the dichotomy, the weighing the privacy of the individual versus the, the nation's need to know. How do you come down on that, especially since you uh, experience both sides, the personal side and the, the professional, the, the political side? Oh, I'm so glad, uh, Keith, thank you for that question. I'm so glad you mentioned that because my grandfather absolutely believed that if you were gonna run for the highest uh, office in the land, you didn't have a right to privacy. You did not have a right to privacy. So when he has this heart attack, he tells the press secretary, I want everybody to know everything. And actually, uh, you're talking about uh, medical records. And the reason you see so much of that on the internet, uh, back to Colin's point, is because um, Jim Haggerty got up every day or every other day and gave a full accounting of everything from his blood pressure, bowel movements, the whole bit. I mean, it was like, frankly, uh, in retrospect, probably pretty embarrassing to uh, read that or even to go back and listen to it again. But <laughs> He believed that the public had a right to know. And, um, uh, and I think that he was completely correct about that. But I also have to say that he believed in transparency during the presidency anyway. He was in favor of releasing just after the war, the Yalta papers about the uh, settlement of Eastern Europe. Uh, he was, his deathbed wishes to us as a family is get everything declassified that you can in the Eisenhower Library, get it out there. I want the public to know what we did um, and and why, warts and all, warts and all. And those were the instructions. And so I found that the events of the last couple of weeks very, very difficult to understand because we did have a right to know uh, if anybody, and by the way, we have a right to know about other elected officials who've been exposed to coronavirus. We have a right to know when they're being tested, how often, uh, because this is a matter of, um, you know, the difference between public confidence and, and an eroding sense of confidence about uh, the health of our government leaders. Well, Susan, I knew it was going to happen when we get to the end here and still have so much more to talk about, but uh, that's the way it goes with these things. I'd like to end with some, a question here because it's an interesting time we're in right now. And 
like I said earlier, this, today's Tuesday, the election's next Tuesday. So at this point in history, we have no idea what's going to happen yet. So uh, we're just waiting. But um, Eisenhower, everything from losing his first child to basically, you know, taking a long, very uncertain path um, to seeing all the things he saw in life. I mean, having to make these decisions that cost the lives of thousands of people, but could have cost the lives of thousands more. I mean, this, this is a lot weighing on your shoulders shoulders. And we did, I'll make this quick point. You know, we didn't even get to this when he visited the first um, concentration camp and saw, you know, full measure of what was going on. His immediate inclination was we got to make sure we get as many records of this as possible because he could foresee that people were going to try to deny this one day. So he invited the media in. he made sure people toured this and saw it firsthand. So there'd be as much physical and, and print and, and, um, and photographic evidence as possible amazing foresight that he had on that. But he saw these things. And he dealt with, you know, a lot of darkness, a lot of things to be pessimistic about in life, but he still had this optimism. And I don't, I don't think anyone who knew him would accuse him of being bubbly or Pollyannish. But one thing I read here, this is not something you always think about with leadership. You think sometimes leaders are only told the good things. Nobody wants to give any bad information, but he demanded of his subordinates the, the very worst side of everything to test every decision. So he has all of this coming at him. You know, are you sure you want to do this? Sir, this, you know, this could, you know, dropping, you know, paratroopers in behind, you know, lines, you know, we don't know what's back there. We don't have any gun placements. That was one, one example at Omaha. Um, it just, it, you have to deal with all of this coming at you constantly and all of the negativity of the press and, and the public when he was president. Tell us about his optimism. Was this something that, he and other people just sometimes have, or is this something he had to work at? Give us a sense of where this was coming from. Well, first of all, I believe um, that his upbringing had a lot to, to do with it. And then also being at West Point, because, you know, it, it gave him the opportunity to understand his place in the hierarchy. There was something bigger in life that he had associated himself with. Um, that was his country. And uh, I believe that he was spiritual, if not um, very uh, oriented towards uh, organized religion. I know he was, uh, he had a spiritual side to him. You know, maybe just the best way to answer this, finally, Colin, is, is just in an absolutely remarkable quote at the end of my book, How I Glad. And he said, uh, he wrote to General Morgan, I believe it was, after World War II. And he said uh, that he believed that their responsibility was to stabilize things and to set things up in a way that the people who follow us will be able to take full advantage of that stability and to um, work for human betterment. And then this is what I will always keep with me, Colin. And then he says to General Morgan, I think when people look at the difficulties uh, they face, they fail to remember how large the forces for good really are. And that was the essence of his optimism, is that most people wanted to do the right thing. They just needed to have the right kind of leadership to be mobilized to do that. And he did see some terrible, terrible things in his life. He understood what evil really looked like um, and, and concluded that those who are not evil have the potential um, you know, to uh, reach out and to uh, accomplish the goals that need to be met. 
And I hope that um, next week, this is going to be a pivotal election, that people remember that the forces for good uh, are in the vast majority um, and that we need to find leadership that is going to tap that resource that we have and to uh, bring about uh, a resolution to some of our biggest difficulties, uh, bringing everyone along together uh, as the United States of America. Well, I can't think of a better place to end it. Um, Susan, to conclude here, tell everybody listening where they can find your book, where they can find out more about the Eisenhower Group and your work and uh, find you out there online. Well, uh, the Eisenhower uh, Group is a consulting company that is, uh, you know, largely um, word of mouth oriented. Um, but actually, the details about the book and, um, you know, reviews and all the usual things you have, including my uh, blog, can be found at www.susaneisenhower.com. Of course, all the usual um, outlets um, uh, support your independent bookstore. We're trying to keep those uh, going, but uh, there's some other ideas about how to get a signed copy and other things on my website. Excellent. Uh, I'd just like to close by thanking both of you, Colin and Keith, for a wonderful opportunity um, and to thank you for all the important work you're doing and bringing um, experts in your field um, to a broader audience. Well, you're very welcome, but uh, the pleasure is all ours. I mean, uh, Absolutely. everybody knows listening to this, I'm a, I'm a history buff, so any chance I have to, to do this, <laughs> I'll, I'll make an excuse and... and... <laughs> What, a, what an amazing opportunity it is to, you know, to connect with history through you. I mean, this is, this is really amazing. Um, but we'll get links to all of that online. Again, that's how Ake led the principles behind Eisenhower's biggest decisions. And Susan, really, I can't thank you enough. I mean, really enjoyed it this morning. Thanks for carving out some time with us. It was just a, well, a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, and uh, keep up the great work and stay safe. And I will um, look for you on, um, on the internet. We, we, we will. And um, everyone, uh, that is Susan Eisenhower. Whenever, wherever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. <laughs>